Hi folks, Jason Crane here reminding you about the 100 by 300 campaign. The idea is to get 100 members by the 300th show. Membership is easy. You can do it in one lump sum each year or month to month for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year. If you choose one of the higher levels, particularly the $500 a year or $50 a month level, you'll be mentioned on every single show. You'll be an official sponsor of the Jazz Session. The 100 by 300 campaign, visit thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member today. Once again, that's thejazzsession.com slash join. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this show is archived until the internet collapses at TheJazzSession.com, and you can go there and listen to all the past shows for free. You can also find the most recent episodes in iTunes, and uh, if you go to AllAboutJazz.com, they're there as well. And you can subscribe using an RSS reader, and all of the information on all of that good stuff is at thejazzsession.com. Please do become a member. There are, uh, well, I'm not sure actually how many there are by the time you're listening to this show. Uh, As I'm recording it, there are almost 20 members on the way to 100 by the 300th show, which is great. And uh, thanks to everybody who has joined already, and uh, my uh, hopes go out to you that you will join them and become a member of the show going to talk about a record today that uh, I really love. It's on the B-Jazz label from France. It's called I Will Follow You, and uh, it's a trio led by saxophonist Jerome Sabag, featuring Ben Monder on guitar and Danielle Humer on the drums, who uh, all three of them just sound fantastic on this album. The uh, very first track, as you'll hear in the interview, uh, was completely improvised, as was much of the record, and it's called I Will Follow You. Thank you. 
My guest is Jerome Sabag. He has a great new album on uh, B-Jazz called I Will Follow You. And uh, Jerome, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, Jason. So I've just been listening to this record over and over, man. This this band is so fantastic. The, the music is uh, so well executed. Uh, maybe you could start by talking about why you put this particular trio together. Sure. Um, I've been playing with Ben Monder for about six years regularly now. He's in my uh, quartet along with uh, drummer Ted Poor and bassist Joe Martin. So I know he's playing really well. We've been playing a lot together. And Daniel Lumaire is... Um, basically a legend in France where I come from he's 72 years old he grew up as a bebop drummer playing with all the great American musicians that were passing by France and Europe in general uh, and he evolved into more of a free player and these days that's really what he is and he's been playing with people such as Tony Maldi and Ellery Eskelin and more avant-garde players uh, yet he, he is uh, steeped in the tradition of jazz so I uh, met him sort of by accident when I was in France about a year ago, and we ended up doing a gig together, trio with bassist Joe Martin, who happened to be in Paris at the, at the same time. Uh, and the gig was really happening, and I was particularly into all the parts that didn't have time. And I thought that was like a interesting uh, thing to explore. I thought he was particularly great at shaping the music when there was no time. Uh, and, and hence the idea if I can just jump in on you there, yep. Jerome, I want to make sure the listeners understand what you mean when you say there's no time. So in other words, no like defined beat, no pulse running through the music, just kind of happening in, in free time, so to speak. Yes, or no regular beat. There may be like little instances of uh, a beat or a pulse happening, but we are not bound by that. Okay, got it. Uh, so I thought it'd be a good idea to play trio with Danielle and Ben Monder, like the guitar, especially Ben's playing, giving a lot of different colors and a lot of different sonic uh, possibilities. And also I knew him really well, so I felt him and me could be really strong in creating a vibe and Danielle could just do whatever he wants to do around it and shape it any way he sees fit. And so that's how the idea came about. Danielle Umer is just unbelievable on this record i mean he's like 40 years older than you guys yeah and he uh i mean he just kills on this album he sounds so amazing it really helps that the album was recorded very well because i think all three of you come through very clearly and it really gives us a chance to hear the interplay of the trio oh thanks a lot
man, I was just I'm just blown away by this record. It, the it, the quality of the playing and the interplay is is so good. What was it like in the studio on the day that you made the record? It was actually pretty easy. Like we recorded all in the same room, which is a thing that I really believe on. I do like all my records like that because uh, I want to be able to hear everybody naturally. So no headphones, no partitions. We're all in the same room playing. You know, like in a similar way as we would be playing live in front of an audience. And I think that helps getting a good type of interaction when you're talking about uh, that you hear on this record. I think if musicians all play in a room, then there's a better chance of that type of interaction happening than if everybody's like listening to everybody else on headphones and you you don't really know what people's tones is like, what what people's uh, dynamics are, like everything is like recreated in the headphones. So... You know, playing together was uh, was an important step, I think, for that to happen. And then it just happened pretty naturally. I had written six songs uh, that basically were little drafts uh, or sketches uh, that had heads in the beginning and heads at the end. Not nothing too involved. Too involved. And then once we played that, like anything could happen in terms of improvisation. And we also did do some completely free improvisations. And we didn't talk much about the music, and it just kind of happened we recorded quite a bit and then i selected what i thought you know were the best takes for for everything or what made to me like the most sense as an album um but it was actually it was not a difficult it was a pretty easy session especially considering the fact that like danielle and ben had never met and danielle and i had only played together once so in the uh, in the tunes, uh, you mentioned that there are some things that are just completely freely improvised, but in the tunes that had heads at the beginning and end, did they have particular chord sequences in the middle for the improvisation, or was it uh, here's the head and then anything goes? It was mostly here's the head and then anything goes. Uh, one of the songs, the one called La Fée Morgane, uh, that one has chords, but I purposely stayed away from chords for the most part uh, just because I didn't want to be bound by even that for the improvisation. I just wanted to keep it wide open. So except for one song, basically after the head, anything goes. And that's interesting to me because, um, not because it's uncommon necessarily, but because you did it in a situation in which the the three musicians, although they had you had played together in subgroupings, but the three of you hadn't all played together before, so... You weren't in a place where you all knew what the other was going to do just automatically, and uh, so it seems like a little more of a risk in this situation. Yeah, at the same time, I think the key is what you said is like, um, we don't know what everybody's going to do automatically, and I think it's a good thing for that to succeed. I think if you know automatically what the other person is going to do, then you're probably bound to do something a little more scripted and to kind of fall into certain cliches of the music jar because I think there are free music cliches as well as there are like bebop cliches so I think in a way the fact that everybody was listening to each other but didn't necessarily know what to expect or rather the combination of like Ben and I knowing each other really well and Danielle not really knowing Ben at all for example I think that actually played to our advantage in this situation
Talk about uh, how you operated as a band leader in this situation. It's, it seems like a, a, an experience in which there was a lot of input from both the other members of the trio. Yeah, there definitely was. Um, first, like Ben and I had actually played the six original tunes on a tour before with the quartet, and I timed the recording after the quartet tour, so we'd had a chance to do that. So Ben and I had talked about the music and played this music before at least the written one. Uh, the written the written songs. Um, Danielle suggested a few things, and for example, the song called Contine, we just played ahead, and we did versions where we played ahead and improvised, and that's usually what we would do live with the quartet. And Danielle suggested that maybe it'd be better to just do the head and make it as beautiful as possible, and that was it. And so we did different versions, and I think it, in the end he was right, like the version that is on the record is the version where we just play the melody and that's it and it has like a I think it has a strong vibe and a different vibe because of it
Um, he also suggested some little form things. Ben suggested, uh, well, Ben was totally free to use whatever sounds he wanted for a start, so he has a lot of impact on the music just because he's got all these pedals and he's like really thinking about the music from a sonic perspective. And he can crank crank up the distortion or he can play with a clean sound or he can do like all sorts of things so that had a huge impact on the music and it was basically his decision all the time um so yeah i would say that like it's really like a three-way thing i just brought the music and kind of gave the general direction but then once we were in there you know it was it was uh it was really like a collective effort and you're so right about uh, Ben's impact on the proceedings, because even right from the very first track, I Will Follow You, where he's got this low... I mean, it almost sounds like there's a bass player um, yeah. in the beginning. you know. And then you contrast that with things like, and I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but Rahan, uh-huh. um, where it's just this you know, distorted, loud, noisy, fantastic <laughs> um, guitar sound. I mean, he really he's all over the map on this thing, and it all works, which I think is great. mentioned I Will Follow You, that happens to be the very first completely improvised track that we played at the session. 
so we had done like takes of like some of the songs I, I wrote but this one is like the first time we were like okay let's play completely free now and that's that's the first track of the record you seem to place yourself intentionally in as many different contexts as you can I know the the quartet focuses on original composition uh, obviously this trio is a mix of composition and free improvisation and then if I'm not mistaken you have another trio that focuses on on standards is that right yeah which is like a saxophone bass drums trio with uh, Ben Street on bass and Rodney Green on drums and that's a really that's kind of like a standards trio it's it's uh, seemingly uh, very traditional in a way and why is that important to you that you that you place yourself in these different contexts? Well, I've always like liked and admired musicians that are able to do that. So that was, and it still is, one of my goals to be somebody that, hopefully, at the same time has a personality and a way to do things, and yet is able to play in different contexts. Because um, I like a lot of different music. I like a lot of different types of jazz, and what I connect to. In jazz is not so much a specific a specific subgenre as much as uh, an attitude and uh, a spirit and a way to do things. Like I feel the music that touches me the most is music that I feel the person who's playing it is really connected to. It's like it's the depth of the connection I think that gets that gets me, and it's uh, an entirely subjective thing, obviously. But it's what I'm trying to cultivate in my music. And so I can play with Daniel Lumaire and Ben Monder and do this pretty, very open, like, free music. And I feel as connected to that as when I'm playing with, let's say, Rodney Green, who's like a, you know, great traditional uh, drummer. And I feel as connected to that because it's more about the way we play and the interaction and the melodies and the rhythm and the tone like how we relate to each other it's more about that for me than it is about let's play this type of music or that type of music particularly since I'm myself attracted to a lot of different things from a practical point of view as a as a working musician does that have an impact either positive or negative on your ability to kind of uh, to market yourself or to or to create an identity for yourself out there since someone could see you one night and hear all the things you are and see you the next night and hear a completely free improvised set yeah, it's a great question. I think I think uh, I think it does have an impact. And actually, I think for now it's. I mean, not to be dark, but I think in some way it does have a negative impact because I think unless unless you get to the point where people really know that know you for your playing and know you for like all these different projects that you do, some people know part of what you're doing and they kind of pigeonhole you. And then, like, your next record might be something completely different, and they're like, whoa, what happened to this guy? Like, you know, this was that, and now this is, like, something entirely different. So I think, in a way, it does make it maybe a bit harder for some people, not everybody, but some people to relate to what I do, just because maybe they're like, what is this guy really, really about, you know? And I can understand that. At the same time, I think, in the end, once you get to a point where everything you do works and everything you do has personality and a certain type of authority then I think people understand it. like for example like Joe Lovano uh, who is somebody that I was inspired by when I started and you know still I'm inspired by um, he puts himself in a lot of different situations and yet he's able to have an instantly recognizable sound so that's something that I aspire to 
as a player. And I think when I'm, you know, hopefully when I'm able to do that in a stronger way than what I'm doing now, I think, you know, the marketing things uh, will solve itself. And hopefully, and also the thing is, like, it's just really hard for everybody right now. We're all kind of struggling to get our music out there in a difficult environment. So, yeah, in a way, if you don't have, like, a very clear, established musical identity in the way that, like, this is the music that I do and every record I do is like that, I think it makes it harder in a way. It sounds like the trick is to build up some trust with your listeners so they know... You know, this may not be what I'm used to, but I know that I trust this musician to take me someplace good, and I'll follow in there. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's very true. I think that's very true. who might be hearing about you for the first time on this interview, uh, can you give us a little background? I know you've been in New York now for more than a decade. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about uh, how you got there and, and where you came from? Sure. Uh, I was born in Paris, France in 1973. Uh, I moved to the States at the age of 20, and I went to Berkeley, the music school in Boston, for a couple of years, and that was 93 to 95. And I moved to New York in 95, so that was over 15 years ago now. Uh, so I guess I've been shaped by a lot of different experiences, but I would say, in a way, most of my learning really kind of took place here in Boston, and actually more, even more in New York, because I've been I've been here for 15 years. Um, so there you go. And do you maintain a, a connection to either the the Parisian or French or European jazz scene? Yeah, I do. I, I play I play in France at least once a year. Actually, more like two or three times a year these days. Um, and I play in the rest of Europe as well. So, uh, yeah, I go there to play regularly. And particularly in France, I have connections with musicians and people there. And, all, and uh, my current label, B-Jazz, is based in France. So, yeah, I have connections there. And I know it's uh, this might be a, a difficult question, or not even a very good question. But are there are there differences that you uh, that you notice between the way you're able to operate as a jazz musician uh, it, when you're in Europe versus when you're in New York? Yeah, I mean, I think there are differences. Like for years and years, I guess um, it's been true that Europe has been like, uh, in a way, more welcoming 
to jazz than America in the sense that there's more money there and there's more public money. Uh, like particularly French musicians will tell you that, although it's changing and it's getting harder over there too, but like since basically the European model of art in general, and this includes jazz, but it's basically true for every form of art, is that the state um, patronizes the art to a certain extent, much more than here. So that allows like festivals to operate, that allows record labels to operate. And so as a musician, when you come to play there, it used to be, and it's changing, but it, it, it is still better than, a little easier, I would say, than like playing in America. For example, I tour Europe, or at least France, like every year, and I've done this every single year for the last like 17 years. Like I've never really done a real tour in America. Like I might go to California and play like two or three gigs, but like I've never really toured around the country because it's just so it's just so daun daunting to put together. Um, so I would say it's a little easier still to work in Europe, uh, but I still wouldn't want to live anywhere else than New York, though, just because the concentration of musicians here, the level of musicianship, um, the commitment that a lot of people have to the music is just, I think, uh, unparalleled anywhere else. Focusing on uh, yourself as a as a writer, a composer, has that always been something that's that's been important to you? It didn't used to be necessarily like I've I've written tunes for a long time, but there was really a time where I decided to make an effort to write more, and I this was like basically ninety five, ninety six to two thousand, and like the reason for that is that I I had a band called Flipside, which was a collective with uh, guitarist Greg Tui, bassist Matt Penman, and uh, drummer Darren Beckett, and we were together basically 95 to 2000 we did an album for Maxwell Jazz in 98 and I was sort of like the impetus for that band yet I wasn't writing much music we were playing mostly Greg's music and Matt's music and after that band was over I really decided that I needed to write uh, music and part of it was I wanted to have my own band and also I was excited to see what kind of music I would write because there's one thing that uh, Dave Liebman said to me uh, uh, when I was studying with with him a long time ago that he said writing music is a great way to find and cultivate your own personality and I think he's right like as much as I connect with standards for example and with the tradition of jazz which is something that is really important to me as a jazz musician and as a saxophone player I don't really write tunes that sound like standards and that's just the reality, that's just who I am as a composer. Like, I don't write tunes that sound, that sound like standards. And I think it was important to write tunes and to recognize that reality to really kind of, like, cultivate a side of my musical personality that I think is really important to who I am as a player.
And how do you write? Do you uh, think of things in your head and write them down? Do you write at the piano? Do you write on your saxophone? How does that work for you usually? I usually don't write on the saxophone. I usually write at the piano or in my head. And actually for this particular album, for I'll Follow You, I would say 80 to 90% of the music I wrote in my head with pen and paper. And sometimes I went to the piano after to check on a couple of things or to get different ideas. But uh, So this was a little different. Like there are tunes that I've written in my head before like I remember some I can remember some very specific tunes on my previous albums that happened that way but those tunes it was more like spur of the moment I heard something took a piece of paper wrote it down and the tune came very quickly but it's it was uh, it's a different process for me to like take a piece of paper and decide okay now I'm gonna write and try to hear something and try to develop it and do this without having basically like a spur-of-the-moment inspiration. So it was a different process. But I thought it was well-suited to this album because there, I, I kind of knew from the get-go that I didn't want a lot of harmony. And so I wanted melodies, and I wanted strong melodies. And in a way, I thought it'd be better if I just all, you know, tried to all hear it in my head and then write it down, as opposed to going to the piano. Also, given the fact that I'm not much of a pianist, so I tend to, my fingers go in certain places in the piano. And I tend to kind of repeat myself and go for like a certain type of thing when I'm at the piano. Uh, just because I'm very limited by what I do technically. So I wanted to get away from that and really have it be something that I would completely hear without having anything to do with any instrument. Do you find that it makes a difference when you know who you're writing for? What particular oh, project? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I really write with... Most of the time, I write with very specific people in mind. If I write for the quartet, it's for Ben, Joe, and Ted. For this band, it was clearly for Ben and Danielle. So I really wrote the music with them in mind. And I think that's something I really believe in. Like, I believe with playing with the same people and having real bands, that's one thing that I think is extremely important and somewhat overlooked these days. I think the strongest music in jazz that I'm drawn to is has always been music that... Um, came out of real bands, people playing together and developing something over time. So that's one thing that I really believe in. And then I think if you write music, yeah, you got to write music uh, for specific people and for the bands that you play in. At least for me, that's that's what I like to do. Thank you. 
If people are listening to this on the day that it comes out, then today is February 10th. Uh, there's some upcoming gigs you'd like to mention? Yeah, actually, tomorrow, February 11th, um, I will be playing at a real nice small venue in the West Village called the Barnex Door. Um, and I'm playing with bassist Joe Martin and drummer Rodney Green. So that's going to be my more standard trio saxophone bass drums. Um, and we play, I think, 7.30 to 12.30 or something like that. We do three sets. And the bar next door is on McDougall between Bleecker and West Third. Is there any chance that uh, of a tour for the uh, the Mondor Humer band? Yeah, my, we're actually going to Europe uh, in April. We'll be playing two gigs in Paris uh, on April 8th and 9th. And one of them is being recorded by French Radio. We might be going to London on the 10th, but I'm not sure. And then we might be playing a festival in June, and we might be playing some more gigs in uh, November uh, in France. So I'm kind of setting that up, so I'm not completely sure. But what's sure right now is April 8th and 9th. But I'm working on it, because I, um, I think if we play live, particularly if we do a tour where you have like a string of gigs together, I think it'll be nice to it'll be nice for the music. It'll, it'll be interesting for me to see what this uh, music will evolve into if we play more. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it seems like it might be great to uh, to do something like that and then get right back into the studio and make a second record. That'd be great. And, you know, not that I have the money to give to you to do that or anything, but uh, <laughs> that's just my <laughs> idea. Uh, and I know uh, I know the jazz session has uh, listeners in Paris and London and uh, throughout Europe. So uh, if you're in great. those areas, definitely check out those gigs. My guest is Jerome Sabag. He has a new record called "I Will Follow You" on the B Jazz label with guitarist Ben Monder and drummer Danielle Umer, and uh, it is it is fabulous. I urge you to go out and get a copy because uh, it won't go out of your CD player like it hasn't left mine. Jerome, it's been great to talk to you, and uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show. And I wish you continued success. Thanks a lot, Jason. Thanks for having me.
That's music from Jerome Sabag and his trio with Ben Monder and Danielle Humer from their album I Will Follow You on B-Jazz. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com. You can also find recent episodes in iTunes and subscribe there or using an RSS reader. And the links are at thejazzsession.com. Please do become a member of the show. Thank you very much. Also, I mentioned just from time to time, every couple of months, uh, my other site, jasoncrane.org, where you'll find poetry and you can pick up a copy of my book, Unexpected Sunlight. Thanks to the Respect Sextet, they recorded the theme music for this show, and uh, they're always out there doing good things in the world. You can find them at respectsextet.com. Their most recent album is Farcical Built for Six. Also, thanks to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo, and he tweets uh, very humorously, which I didn't just make it sound like, uh, but he does, at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks a lot for listening. Now get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.